push this conversation forward, what I'm trying to say is that the border is moving beyond the bounds of, let's say, an airport or even a court of law. And it becomes this kind of amorphous construct that is difficult to pin down geographically. So then what happens when the border becomes embodied in a person, essentially? That's, that's the worry with biometrics that the fact that we are now increasingly collecting data that is biological and whether that's fingerprints or irises or even something as ephemeral as your gait or your manner of walking or even your basal body temperature that can be a biometric marker or your vein pattern i mean i had no idea about all of this it's really quite fascinating i think the worry is is that states are then able to survey populations from a much greater distance um, and from a legal perspective the worry is is that I think a lot of states kind of want to have their cake and eat it too. They want to sign all these international instruments protecting the rule of law, human rights, and the fundamental right to seek asylum. But at the end of the day, you also, of course, at the end of the day, you want to be able to control who comes to your borders because there are certain desirable migrants like investors that you want to come. And then there's other types of migrants that you want to keep away. And biometrics is a way to be much more efficient in terms of screening out who is able to come. University of Cambridge and the Centre of Governance and Human Rights. I am Jennifer Tridgell and this is Declarations. their experiences of refugees and asylum seekers in this globalised world. Whether it is artificial intelligence or AI being used to screen their immigration applications or mobile applications designed to help them access information and healthcare. The implications are far-reaching and complex since such technological innovations could either strengthen or undermine human rights. How human bodies are sorted reflects power dynamics and values in the 21st century. For example, artificial intelligence could expedite decision-making for immigration agents and reduce the backlog of cases. Yet, it is potentially dangerous to use AI in making decisions which could bear life or death consequences by approving or denying a request for asylum. Today we consider these questions about the current and future use of technology in the immigration space, plus how we should change the conversation so that people can become more informed in using and developing these crucial tools. I am joined today by two expert guests. Firstly, Petra Molnar is a lawyer who specialises in immigration and human rights law. During her time as a researcher at the University of Toronto, she co-authored Bots at the Gate, 
a report which analyzes the human rights impacts of automated decision-making in Canada's immigration and refugee system. She recently completed an LLM in international law at the University of Cambridge, focusing on artificial intelligence in migration management. Matt Mamoudi is a PhD candidate and Joe Cox scholar at the University of Cambridge, where his research focuses on technological marginalization in refugees and asylum seekers. He is also program lead at thewhistle.org, coordinates the Cambridge branch of Amnesty International's Digital Verification Corps, and co-founded this podcast, Declarations. Finally, Matt is a co-author of a forthcoming OUP book, Digital Witness. Welcome to you both. Thank you for having me. Thanks a lot. It's weird to be on this side. Our founding father. <laughs> Petra, to begin, could you please give a brief overview of new technologies in migration management and how they impact human rights? So in my work, I've been looking at how these new technologies are used to either augment or replace human decision makers. And that has been occurring in a variety of ways. So like you mentioned in our report, Bots at the Gate, we were looking at essentially how algorithmic decision making is used to assist with a variety of applications in Canada. Um, and even though it's early days, uh, what we found out was this push for uh, by governments to essentially think through new technologies as a way to make the immigration system, which is often quite opaque and discretionary, more efficient. But inherently, there's human rights concerns that um, are uh, that come to play with that uh, technology. Essentially, one of the issues that we are seeing time and time again is the lack of governance and a lack of any kind of kind of legal regime used to govern these technologies. Um, so we're seeing, you know, algorithmic decision making proliferate in immigration. Um, also, in instances like what's happening at the U.S.-Mexico border, where an algorithm was tweaked to essentially um, assist with decision-making um, around whether a person should be placed into immigration detention. And it was hugely problematic because the algorithm essentially placed everyone in detention. Uh, we're also seeing new technologies for surveillance, uh, for example, along the Mediterranean corridor. Uh, technology that's often used um, in war or in uh, defense is now proliferating into the migration space without appropriate uh, safeguards and oversight when it comes to data protection, for example. So it's definitely, it's a new field, but we're seeing many actors, whether it's states, private companies, or even international organizations like the UN, thinking through and experimenting with this use of new tech without uh, really you know, analyzing and, and thinking about human rights impacts. One issue that has come up quite a bit recently is this question of whether artificial intelligence is actually free from bias. Could you explain a little bit about this? Well, we already know that AI has a pretty bad track record on being bias free when it comes to things like race and gender. So there's a lot of examples out there already. For example, we know that an algorithm has a tendency to equate man with doctor and woman with kitchen. Or there's a, a lot of literature now kind of debunking this, this idea that technology is somehow more neutral or less, less biased than human beings. You just need to look at how facial recognition technology often is used in really problematic ways. Or even the Compass algorithm in the United States, which was hugely criticized, for example, for uh, making determinations about recidivism rates in the criminal justice system and perhaps not surprisingly, making assumptions about communities of color having higher recidivism rates than, than um, different communities. So then what happens when these technologies are introduced into immigration? Essentially, immigration law 
uh, is very opaque and discretionary. And already we know that uh, human decision makers struggle with a lot of the complexities of, of human migration. So what is going to happen when we use new tech? It's, it's a bit of a free-for-all. Um, and the worry is, is that the, the human rights impacts can be quite far-reaching, particularly because we're dealing with a population that often doesn't have access to counsel, doesn't have access to resources uh, to challenge some of these problematic decisions. Um, and we can, I think, all already see how, how this could play out. For example, if you have an AI lie detector, which is actually something that's happening in the European Union and also countries like Canada and the US are experimenting with this, under the guise of national security and border enforcement, you have this AI lie detector that's purportedly supposed to discern whether you are telling the truth about your immigration journey. But it might be based on really problematic biased data and make certain assumptions about what counts as credible or truthful information that you give it, not really taking into account things like differences in cross-cultural communication or even something as uh, complex as the impact of trauma on memory, for example. Bias can really inhere in these systems quite easily. And for me, what's most worrisome is that we start with the presupposition that technology is somehow objective and neutral and bias-free or more, more bias-free than human beings. And that's a big problem. Matt, to bring you into the conversation, your research explores the new digital boundaries to life in cities in an era of datafied refuge. What is this concept of datafied refuge and how does migration management technology extend beyond the border as well? Well, to go off the back of exactly what, what Petra was just talking about, I suppose that migration management or mobility governance doesn't really stop at the border. Um, and it continues and seeps into the city, it seeps into urban life. Uh, and the way that this often manifests is through apps and uh, through other assessment tools, uh, technological infrastructure upon which people are reliant in order to access services, in order to access uh, uh, jobs, housing, etc. And so really the way that people come to know about life and the way people come to access uh, often their socioeconomic rights in the city, especially as, as mobile populations, is often uh, technologically mediated. Um, I'll get back to this in a moment, but just to speak about what datafied refuge is, I, I argue in my work that this moment of, of refuge, this moment of the refugee crisis, is distinct than any other moment, not, not because of sheer scale, but because of how the process of refuge from the moment that people flee their home uh, countries through to being resettled within a city or, or to being in a camp, that whole process is datafied, right? And, and it's, it's different than any other moment because, uh, well, we can argue that refuge has always been datafied, for example, since the dawn of the, of the passport. Um, and certainly, you know, the datification of colonial subjects goes way further back. And this is just, you know, tacking on to that genealogy. Uh, you know, colonial subjects were categorized and they were numbered and they were counted um, by the British Empire, for example. But what's really unique about this moment is how uh, innovations in post 9-11 biometric technologies comes together with the widespread uh, diffusion of network consumer products uh, to really form this security apparatus that we often cannot see. Uh, because the way that it seeps into our everyday life, it's, it seems so benign and it's got the power to modulate access for some above access for others. And that's often uh, how the asymmetries in cities emerge for, say, refugees and asylum seekers. One major concern with the growing role of technology in migration management is the lack of governance and oversight mechanisms and the exclusion of affected groups from 
the development of this technology and often the review process itself. Petra, in relation to the proposed artificial intelligence system for the Canadian immigration system, what do you think of their proposed oversight mechanisms and how do you think they should be strengthened? So I think in my work, what's been quite interesting is precisely getting into these questions of what governance could or should look like when it comes to this new technology. And, you know, I'm going to put my optimist hat on <laughs> for a second. I think the, the thing that's been good is that thinking through governance mechanisms has brought a lot of us together and enforced us out of our disciplinary silos. And, you know, you now have lawyers and technologists and, and different uh, academics or experts talking kind of with each other about what governance could potentially look like. But the issue is, is that there's a lot of technological experimentation that happens unbeknownst to the public. Um, and that's why conversation around governance has to include affected communities right from the get go. And, and we really need to think through what transparent and accountable use of technology would actually look like. So the Canadian government, it's, it's been quite interesting because um, we now have this binding government directive on algorithmic impact assessment. So essentially any federal government department that is using algorithms, so not just in immigration, but across the board, now has to participate in this assessment to get a risk score in terms of how the algorithm that they're proposing to use is going to impact people's lives. I mean, that sounds well and good, but we don't know what that will actually mean. And we need to make sure that that's not just kind of a rubber stamp model. And in my most recent work, you know, I've been thinking through how these technologies of migration management are governed internationally and what the role of international human rights law might be. And right now, I mean, there is no integrated global governance mechanism whatsoever. It's, it's essentially kind of a free-for-all experimentation and, and somehow we seem to be okay with that. And I think if anything, any kind of conversation around governance also has to get around these kind of normative questions around what are we okay with as a society when it comes to technological experimentation. And why is it somehow okay that we are experimenting with this new tech in criminal justice or healthcare or immigration um, and, and, you know, not in other areas? Some of us argue that it's precisely what Matt said. It, it's, it's about, you know, making certain populations knowable and intelligible and trackable and allow for power structures that are part of the status quo to continue. And I think we're really seeing that with the proliferation of technology in the migration management mm. space. I can imagine it is quite difficult to distill such a complex moral and social question like that into giving a score for a piece of technology onto whether it infringes human rights or not. It fundamentally is a question of what perspective people are approaching the issue from and what they think is important. Matt, you have also expressed concern about the adverse inclusion of vulnerable populations mm -hmm. as sites for experimentation by technologists. Mm -hmm. Could you explain this phenomenon and also give us some examples, please? Right. I mean, there are several examples of, uh, of, of adverse inclusion that I can talk about, but some of them were already mentioned by, by Petra. So why don't we just go through them? The language of, for example, efficiency and how we can make migration management more efficient and, and the language around making that seem as though you are serving a particular population when really what you have to ask is efficient for whom and uh, what does what does efficiency even mean in this uh, in this space? Do we want the process of migration and assessing an individual's 
journey and whether they are deserving of a particular status. Do we want that to be a fast process or do we want that process to be considerate? And this is something that we need to ask ourselves. Also, when it comes to questions of bias, like it may well be that uh, technologies aren't unbiased as is, but do we want them to be unbiased in the first place? For example, if surveillance technologies become more sophisticated in a way that they are able to pick up on bodies of color, um, brown bodies, black bodies, the way that they're able to surveil becomes increasingly more sophisticated and invasive. And so rather than thinking about the bias-related questions in this space, we have to ask if these technologies were unbiased in the first place, wouldn't they just be more sophisticated in their marginalization? And so one of the conclusions that we have to come to is, should we challenge the premise of these technologies altogether rather than you know make them better at picking up bodies of color, picking up othered bodies? And what I think about when I say adverse inclusion, this is one form of it. It's the inclusion that is on the surface level. It seems as though it plays on the language of diversity and it plays on the language of let's make it more accessible, but actually it makes the security dimension more sophisticated. Um, one of the other ways in which I've been thinking about this and, and picking this up is the ways in which the refugee populations in cities are often used as justifications for a lot of investment into tech initiatives that purport to know exactly how to solve very complex social, economic, and political issues. That includes um, access to housing, that includes access to jobs, that includes access to information, uh, that includes access to identities. And these are sometimes questions uh, around which uh, these technologists have never even consulted a migrant-led organization about or the community itself. And so the sort of face of the refugee becomes a justification upon which this technology is built. But oftentimes when you speak to communities, you'll either find that they have horror stories of the technology not having met their needs or potentially having given them misinformation, or you have stories in which uh, individuals don't actually uh, know of the tool in the first place. And there's sort of just, you know, these tools end up getting lots of attention and they end up getting lots of funding. But refugees and asylum seekers themselves are kind of left to their own devices with government sort of playing on this whole, well, we've invested into these mm -hmm. initiatives and they're taking care of the issue. Well, you note in your research as well that communities have existing channels of both digital and non-digital communication already, which are sometimes sidelined in favour of developing these new, sexy and disruptive technologies. For sure. Do you think that this kind of paternalism is something that more technology companies and also lawyers should be more aware of? Yeah, so I mean, I can't speak much to the law dimension because I'm, I'm not a lawyer. I'm, I guess, a political sociologist. But when I think about uh, these questions, I often think about to what extent these technologies augment social relations or whether they disrupt social relations. And one of the ways in which the existing communication channel comes to play is uh, thinking about how the process of integration I put that in quotation marks because I think that's a racialized narrative altogether. But if we think about the process of getting access to a certain set of services and socioeconomic rights that you depend on in order to survive in the city and how information about that is often communicated best through anchor communities. So diaspora communities that exist uh, uh, who communicate with newcomers about, you know, this is how you hack the system, essentially, or this is how you get access to this, this and that. And these these forms of communications are already happening on Facebook groups, on WhatsApp groups. They're not efficient. They're not fast. There's no app for it because it's a complicated process. There's lots of back and forth that requires a lot of energy. 
and individual relationships. People already have these existing communication channels. And if anything, we should be thinking about how we can bolster those channels, right? How can we augment those social relations? How can we ensure that people have more channels to communicate with anchor communities rather than creating new channels that that people don't really use? Exactly. And continuing on from that point, how do you both think that we should change the conversation about the development of new technology in the immigration space? I think the starting point has to be a really critical examination of the fact that the benefits of technology are not experienced the same way by everybody. Um, and it's it's clear in terms of how technology has developed the particular lack of diversity across the table when, when we are talking about new technology. I mean, the tech sector is, I would say, very white and male, and, and, and a lot of the kind of lived experiences of migration are not representative um, of the technology that's being developed. And, I mean... In terms of where this is all going, I, I, I would say we have to, again, start from the basic kind of normative question around what, what, what type of society do we want to build and what type of migration supports do we want to, to have, for example, because, you know, it, it's one thing to be obsessed with innovation and efficiency, but at what cost? You know, what are the costs and what are the real implications on people's lives when we start experimenting with the new, new use of technology without actually thinking through know, impacts on human rights or, or human lives. And, you know, one example that always really sticks with me is, of course, you know, we want the, like, let's say in the humanitarian space, ideally, we would want the provision of services to be as quick and fast as possible. And oftentimes, new technology is experimented with precisely for those reasons. So instead of having a cash card that you tap out every week, you can now get your retina scanned and have your weekly food rations given to you. But what if you don't want your retina scanned? What if you're uncomfortable with having data collected on you by some unknown entity that you might not even really understand as a refugee that's now kind of interacting with a, a whole new, new system of rules and regulations? Well, if you don't have your iris scanned that week, you don't eat. Mm. To me, that is not free and informed consent at all. That's actually just a justification for technological experimentation and, and we don't really know for what ends or what means. Technology is not democratic, right? Like, I think we need to get away from thinking of it as this objective tool. It's, it's a social construct just like anything else. And, and that, that's a useful lens through to, I think, that we can apply to, to a lot of this work. We, we, it can show us how power inheres in society and how technology allows for particular groups to remain kind of at the top and, and other spaces um, are, are seen as spaces of experimentation. Another example of sort of having this enduring storage of data that is marginalizing and creates severe lack of trust or severe distrust, should I say, is the ID2020 initiative that I know a lot of other people talk about because they're concerned with Microsoft and Accenture coming in and spending lots of money and resources into developing sophisticated blockchain-based digital identification systems uh, for refugees under the guise of, again, providing legal documentation for people who don't have it, right? Um, and this is seen as something to celebrate. We forget that Microsoft also has a $19.4 million contract with ICE to provide the same infrastructure that they provide for ID2020 for the system that allows for the deportation and separation of families. But this is a different story. What I want to get to here is once you have your identity stored in something as enduring as a blockchain, you can no longer rely on strategies that are typically used by people who are stateless, such as the strategy of de-identification and a strategy of flexible identities. And to explain that a little bit, 
the strategy of de-identification is when you're in a context of being deported, a measure of last resort is to strip yourself of any identification that uh, would identify you as this particular person who is being deported. So that means burning passports. That means getting rid of any information that you might have otherwise. It means, you know, clipping up cards. And, and if you do that, you can't be deported, right? Because legally, there's nothing that ties you to that identity. Uh, equally, uh, you can use flexible identities, like you may use your cousin's identity in order to enter a country and seek asylum if you don't have identification. And these two strategies are strategies that, that people can no longer use if their data is stored sort of semi-permanently on the blockchain in a way that it would be with ID2020. So it creates this sort of asymmetry where people who were previously uh, able to uh, resist and, and contest structures that were trying to push them out of countries or trying to push them out of asylum in the first place, they're no longer able to, to resist these because they become sort of hard-coded into the surveillance structure. Declarations is brought to you by, well, you, the audience. So if you like what you're hearing, or if you have any comments or suggestions, rate and review us on that app you're using right now. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter and Facebook. Now, back to the show. Having a permanent record of someone's identity and immigration status, this is particularly difficult for lawyers who don't necessarily have any technical training to understand and frame in a way that least infringes on a person's human mm. rights. Petra, could you please talk a little bit about the importance of interdisciplinary conversations within this space? That's such an important question and that's something I think that a lot of us are starting to think about, particularly around how these new technologies are really, I think, changing some of our fundamental understandings of, of what even the legal system could look like once we start augmenting or replacing human decision makers with, with automated decision makers. So. Let's say there's, this is an a, a perfect example from this jurisdiction in the UK. So, for example, an algorithm decided that over 7,000 foreign students cheated on a language acquisition test, made a mistake, deported 7,000 people based on a fa faulty algorithm. So what if you, you know, we don't even need the most extreme example. Let's say maybe you were deported back to a home country and you faced persecution or torture. But let's just say you wanted to challenge that ruling and you wanted to come back to the UK. What, what exactly are you challenging? Are you challenging the algorithm itself? Are you challenging the officer who had to interpret that finding? Are you challenging the designer who designed the algorithm? Who has, who, where does the responsibility lie here? Should an algorithm have independent legal personality that you can then take to court? And these seem like facetious questions, but they're not really. And I think the legal system is going to start, have to start grappling with them. And in terms of education, I mean, I think this is, these are the kind of questions that we have to start asking ourselves early on in people's legal careers, but even later on as in terms of judicial education, because judges are going to have to start thinking about how Again, these basic kind of questions of responsibility, redress, um, what is that going to look like when we start um, introducing a whole new kind of system of cognition into these decisions? In thinking about how we should change the conversation with developing new technologies, 
Could you please discuss the concept of racial capitalism and why it is important in this space? A lot of what we're talking about right now, and we haven't really discussed this in our space, in the migration tech space generally, but I think a lot of it does tie to racial capitalism. And the way to to think about that, just in terms of Cedric Robinson's framing, when he first talks about racial capitalism, just to give you the short background, he refutes the dominant notion of what capitalism is espoused by Marx and says uh, racial subject formation pre-existed capitalism in European society and it concerned the Roma people, it concerned Irish folk. And in fact, capitalism, rather than being a negation and reaction to feudalism, was an evolution of feudalism and of the racial part in particular and how the racialized subject formations um, were innovated into capitalism as we know it today. And so capitalism just becomes a more sophisticated way of relying on racial subjects uh, for profit extraction and for capital accumulation. And so uh, all we will be seeing is capitalism become more and more sophisticated in the way that it uses racialism. And so in the same way, in my work, I argue that the digital periphery of today is very much uh, set up as the same kind of racial subjects as back in feudalism. You know, today we have certain digital peripheries on whom the uh, technological ways in which capitalism is innovating depends. Right. So we depend on refugees in order to create sophisticated ID technologies like those are the people who these technologies are first tested on. We depend on so and so other population in order to create some way of uh, using big data for good. Right. Like usually it's marginalized black populations in New York City. We depend on other marginalized populations to develop public Wi-Fi infrastructures. We also develop sophisticated ways of tracking behaviors so as to deliver ads more efficiently to these marginalized populations. So again, it's very clear to me that this latest fad with technology for migration governance is so fundamentally tied to racial capitalism. And so in changing the conversation, we can't simply talk about making the technology less biased or making it more human-centered. I think it's so important to acknowledge that migration governance and the technologies that come with it is is tied to this dominant power. conversation is starting around the fact that you know ethics don't go far enough it's a very it's a soft kind of idea that you know you should do ethical things and then that's all good and and that's it but ethics are not enforceable at the end of the day you can have as many ethical statements about the use of your technology as you want but if there is no compliance mechanism if there is no rights respecting governance mechanism then at the end of the day it doesn't really matter i mean that's not to say that the whole human rights project isn't also in and of itself problematic mm-hmm. that's perhaps for a different uh, episode of declarations but at the i think at the end of the day if anything looking at these issues from a human rights perspective or a rule of law perspective does force us to think about 
you know, where does the responsibility lie over the development of this technology? What kind of mechanisms of appeal or redress are there? What can we do in terms of fundamental rights breaches when it comes to this technology? Because they are already happening. I mean, make no mistake, this isn't some sort of futuristic conversation. We already know that there's problematic uses of this new technology. So the question is, are we comfortable with throwing around ethical frameworks and norms or, or do we need to move the conversation forward in terms of well, what are the next steps if you know the the train has kind of left the station and we are already using this new technology what can we do to ensure that fundamental human rights are not being inf infringed and if they are what are the appropriate mechanisms that we can then use to make sure that um, the impact on people's lives is lessened we've talked quite a bit today about how technology could be improved within the immigration space. Can both of you give some examples of technology that is working well? First of all, just to say, I don't think they should be improved. I think we should get rid of them, like dismantle them, right? Dismantle the, the technologies that are uh, sorting bodies in these ways that, that, that isn't compliant with neither human rights nor are they compliant with what we would want for ourselves as citizens, right? Would you use these technologies on, on, on us? Like, if you would ask technologists, would you use these technologies on yourself? I'd be really curious as to what they would say. As for examples of what's working, I mean, Petra and I were mulling over this before. It's, it's a difficult one. I mean... <laughs> You know, I think, uh, again, if technology is seen as a tool, then we can think through maybe innovative ways that different spaces are opening up for information sharing, for example, you know, or, or the great work that's being done to use, um, you know, evidence collected out of a conflict zone, for example, to corroborate particular things that might then be used for, you know, an international prosecution. I mean, yeah, that, that is good things. But like, I think as Matt was saying, we need to broaden the conversation and, and actually really drill down and ask ourselves, what kind of world are we building through the use of this technology? And, and what kind of assumptions are we making about the power structures that we want our worlds to have, right? And, you know, I find it fascinating, right? Because oftentimes you see these articles and these exposés about all these, um, you know, San Francisco bros who are like, no technology for my children in the home, you know? <laughs> so somehow we we don't want this technology for, for those of us who are in a position of privilege and power, but somehow it's okay when it happens in a refugee camp or in a criminal justice court of law. So again, I mean, technology is not uh, inherently democratic. It is not neutral. We need to get away from thinking about it as some sort of benign tool for social good. I mean, it can have really positive impacts on society. But for me, in my own work, I've just seen it too many times be used to reify the particular power structures that we are trying to fight against. I mean, I think it would be different if, if this technology was used to push the conversation around, let's say, open borders forward. Mm. But that's precisely not what's happening. So mm. I'm hesitant to to even, I'm not even really able to think of any examples uh, off the top of my head that, that are positive, to be honest. Thank you both to Petra and Matt for joining me today on this episode of Declarations. We look forward to bringing you the next episode. 